You're listening to Country Music Success Stories featuring Music City mentor J.C. Don Valeris. Now, here's your host, Candy O'Terry. Gentle on my mind. Wichita lineman, Galveston. By the time I get to Phoenix, rhinestone cowboy. Iconic songs by an icon of country music. Generations of artists count Glenn Campbell as one of the greatest artists who ever lived. A role model whose unique singing voice, his way of turning a lyric into a feeling, could connect you right to the very heart of a song. And then there's his ability to play guitar. Experts say that Glenn Campbell was the greatest guitarist to ever play. In fact, he was a member of the famous Wrecking Crew before he even became a solo artist. The interview you are about to hear was recorded live at the Glen Campbell Museum in Nashville on April 21st, 2022, as part of a week-long tribute to a man who was loved by many and respected by musicians and recording industry executives everywhere. Glenn died of Alzheimer's disease in 2017, and the museum is a place where you can experience his talent and his legacy all under one roof. If you've never been to the Glen Campbell Museum, you've just got to go. It's a Nashville treasure where you will see his guitars, his awards, his costumes. You can even sing along to Rhinestone Cowboy in a soundproof booth. As our audience took their seats, our hope was to uncover details about Glen Campbell that would bring us closer to who he was at his core the son of a sharecropper from Delight, Arkansas, whose music touched the world. The three industry giants we interviewed sure did deliver with stories about their friend, Glenn. Our first panelist has worked in the Nashville music scene since he was 17 years old. From playing bass for Steve Warner to selling merch and managing tours, he has done it all. As the founder of TKO Management, he has what it takes to manage a superstar roster that includes Toby Keith, Mac McAnally, the Bacon Brothers, Clay Walker, and as of 2016, Glenn Campbell. Please welcome TK Kimbrell. Come on up, TK. Our second panelist is a multi-Grammy winner and the senior vice president of A&R for Big Machine Records. He worked as the executive producer and the composer for the documentary Glenn Campbell, I'll Be Me, earning an Academy Award nomination and the 2015 Grammy for Best Country Song, which he shared with our beloved Glenn Campbell. Please welcome Julian Raymond. And our final panelist is a wonderful man who everybody knows his last name here in Nashville. He started booking bands in high school and later made his way to Los Angeles, where he worked for Capital RCA and Mercury. In 1978, he came to Music City to start his own independent record promotion company, where his son, Scott, worked his way up the ladder and found himself founding Big Machine Records. Like father, like son. Please welcome Mike Borchetta. Come on up, Mike. So, ladies and gentlemen, please join us in welcoming our incredible panel TK Gimbrell, Julian Raymond, and Mike Borchetta. <laughs> Woo! Welcome. 
Welcome to Country Music Success Stories. JC and I are so delighted to have you guys on the show. Thank you very much for being here. The first question is, tell us about the first time you met Glenn Campbell. Where were you? How did you meet him? And what was your first impression? TK, you're up first. Well, I had weaseled my way backstage <laughs> uh, several times because Glenn's my favorite. Most talented person ever put on the face yes. of the earth. Guitar playing, singing. But I actually met him, I think, in 1981 after a show with Steve Warner. And we went to his hotel room and hung out for quite a while. It was a great experience, but it was before he met Kim. So <laughs> it was... <laughs> Enough said about that. Um, but, I, but I wasn't disappointed. He sang without a guitar for two or three or four hours. And he it was sang just a cappella for everybody? Acapella. Yeah, sang us a bunch of songs. I would say that there was a little bit of drinking, maybe a little bit of pot smoke. And Steve Warner and I went in there, and he was standing at a Howard Johnson's in Cleveland. And, you know, 28 flavors ice cream. <laughs> and I think we went in there with like a milkshake and a Twinkie or something. And, uh, <laughs> but Glenn was so nice to us. He, he was such a great country boy. And... He had me tell him some jokes. He was really funny, amazingly funny. And, you know, it was uh, late at night with a lot of things going on, and every time I saw him after that, he remembered those jokes. He did. How about you, Julian? Tell us about the first time you met Glenn, and what was your first impression? Okay, it's kind of hard to explain, but I came up with a concept to do a record called Meet Glenn Campbell, which was basically cover songs that we reconstructed to sound like Glenn Campbell songs. I was given the green light to meet with Glenn, so we went over to his then-manager, Stan Snyder's offices. We met with Glenn to discuss, you know, what songs possibly to do for this record. And I was blown away, because I don't know if he just came in off the golf course or what the deal was, but he had these green plaid pants on, like golf pants, and he had like a, I, I, I could be wrong, but it was like a gold jacket or some sort of weird, it was really cool, and he had these big Elvis glasses on, and he looked like a giant rock star walking in, and I was so intimidated because, you know, as a kid, my dad would take me to True Grit and all these things, and I remember him so early on as being this bigger-than-life guy, so, boy, it, I mean, it was, it was kind of nerve-wracking to talk to him because he didn't say a lot. But, you know, as we got to know each other better, he, he was just the greatest guy ever. So that was the first time. How about you, Mike Borchetta? Well, I'll tell you, the first experience I had with Glenn, I was an independent record promoter in California working for a fellow named Erwin Zucker. I was 19. And they put out a record on Crest Records called Turn Around, Look at Me. And I had the privilege of promoting that record. After that record was a hit, or semi-hit, he left that label to go to Capitol and I went to Capitol the very same time. So from day one, I was Glenn's promoter at Capitol. And we had the privilege of going to all the radio stations on the West Coast. And I've got a lot of stories and a lot of experiences. And there was never a more wonderful human being on the planet than Glenn Campbell. I like to tell you one quick golf story. We'd go to Torrey Pines in San Diego and La Jolla, play golf a lot. And one day we're out there. And he's teeing off with these golf clubs. He's reaching down, and he could hardly hit the ball. He said, these aren't my size. I said, oh, you're kidding. He said, try him. So I hit it, and the ball went right down the middle. He said, are they your size? I said, yeah, why? He said, I bought them for you. That's the kind of guy he was. 
And so twice in my career, a person in the music business bought me a set of golf clubs. They were Woods, McGregor Woods, which are a classic. The other person was T.K. Kimbrell. <laughs> we, 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 we. T.K. is one of these people, sort of like Glenn Campbell. Just everybody loves T.K. And we were working a Sawyer Brown record. And he said, Mike, if this record goes number one, I think called The Walk. If it goes number one, you're going to get an X amount, two, three thousand dollar bonus or whatever. Well, the record stopped at two. <laughs> he called me up. He says, let's go have lunch. So we go to, out towards where the place is on Murphy Road. He says, are you really hungry? I said, no, not really. I just had lunch. He said, well, let's go to the golf shop. He bought me a set of clubs, bought me a golf bag. And so he and Glenn are very high up on my list. It's good to be friends with Glenn Campbell and TK. That's what I've learned from that story. That's about all Glenn and I have in, in common. <laughs> He's got talent. All right, the next question is also for all three of you. Glenn got his start as a session player with the famous Wrecking Crew, the best players on the biggest albums for the biggest artists. Did Glenn ever share any stories about what his experiences were like with the Wrecking Crew? Absolutely. He talked about that all the time. Even when his memory was slipping, he remembered those session players. And that was a, a highlight of his life. He was put on earth to play music. Willie Nelson, I think, quote, and I don't want to do a word for word, when the good Lord was passing out talent, Glenn got in the line twice. <laughs> and, and then Merle Haggard said, if there's a human being on the face of the earth with too much talent, it's Glenn. So Glenn played all those years on every record you could imagine. Strangers in the Night, oh. Viva Las Vegas, You've Lost That Love and Feeling, Bridge Over Troubled Waters, all these songs. And he came to Nashville and did his first session. I think it was with Harold Shedd. And he came to Nashville with all these great players here. And Glenn was so funny. They did their first session, the morning session. They all went out and were hanging out in the green room. And of course, they're all in awe of Glenn. This was 83 or something. Glenn goes, I want you guys to know that you have more talent in your whole bodies than I do in my little finger. And they were like, uh. well, thanks, Glenn. <laughs> he was that humble. And he busted out laughing. <laughs> Julian, what about you? Did he share any stories with you about the Wrecking Crew? A lot of them, and the biggest thing still to this day, which was a giant honor for me when we did the song, I'm Not Gonna Miss You, we got them back together again, the most of them, for the session. So it was a very emotional day to see them all in one room together. Hal Blaine was his funny self, and the jokes were flying, and Joe Osborne was incredible. You know, it was just a, it was a magical day, and I could tell that you know, it was very emotional for them. Those guys, I don't think they were really sessions. They were like, they were just hanging out, having fun. You know, I mean, everything you see in that documentary, The Wrecking yes. Crew, it's hilarious. And they were all so gifted. I think you were right, TK. He, he always told me the same thing. Those are the happiest musical years of his life. You know, he really loved being with those guys. They were family. Mike? I had left Capitol because... Uh, I went to go work for Elvis because the job at RCA came open. So I went to RCA, and Glenn and I were on a golf course where we spent a lot of our time. And he said, I'm recording with Elvis tonight. Come to the session. So I was tickled. I said, I get to go see Elvis record. And I go to my boss. At the, I said, I'm going to go see Elvis record tonight. 
He says, who told you Elvis was recording? I said, why? He says, because you're not allowed to go to the sessions. And here, every artist, whether it be Sawyer Brown, whether it be Glenn, they wanted your promoter to be there to get excited. Well, RCA wouldn't let me go to the session. So two weeks later, I quit. So basically, if it wasn't for Glenn, I'd still be at RCA, and I hated it. <laughs> anyway, but um, one other quick story with Glenn. He was doing sessions for everybody. And one time, he was doing some sessions for me just to help out. I had a group called the Four Speeds, and it was Brian Wilson doing backup, Al Jardine doing backup, Dennis Wilson. These are all Beach Boys playing the drums. I asked Glenn to come and do some backup for me. $25 he charged me to do the session. Well, I thought that was really neat. But here a few years back, Al Jardine was here with the Beach Boys, and I talked to him. He says, you know, I played on that session for you with the four speeds. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah, you paid me $5. <laughs> <laughs> so he signed a copy of the record by the four speeds. It says, to Mike Borchetta, very best, your $5 background singer, Al Jardine. <laughs> I said, that's a classic. Great stories. Great stories. Thank you. Okay, next question. In the movie, Glenn Campbell, I'll Be Me, Keith Urban says that he admired Glenn so much because he had a certain cry in his voice. And the boss said there was a certain tone and emotion. In your opinion, what was the secret ingredient in Glenn's voice? TK. I heard him say this a lot. He said, they always told me to sing mournful. And he had that down. And he could just deliver his songs about being homesick. He had that certain thing in his voice that connected. And I'll say this about Keith Urban. He always remembered meeting Keith Urban when he was like, Keith was seven or eight or nine years old. And Glenn remembered that till the end. Keith was very memorable to him. Julian. I worked with Glenn much later in life, but the real bottom line with him is he really couldn't sing anything he didn't feel. He he wouldn't, you know, we were going through lyrics of certain songs we were going to try, and if he didn't like it or didn't connect with it, he really didn't want to do it. He always had to feel an emotional connection to the songs. That's why I think he picked so many great ones throughout those earlier years. I've never really met anyone like that before because the most amazing thing about his voice to this day to me is I can understand every word he says. You know, I work with a lot of people that are younger today, and they're great, but the bottom line is (laughs) you could understand Glenn's every single word, and it was with passion. You could just do it better than anybody. Well, Julian, to your point, you know, Glenn had such a a large body of work and his repertoire had so many perfect songs for him. I want to ask all of you, what was that one song for you personally that just got you right here in your heart? TK? All of them. I I know. Can you pick one? Yeah. Well, I remember where I was when I heard Gentle on My Mind and Wichita Line. And so those would be the top two for me. But you can go to his reunion album that he did with Julian, and he's consistent. So they all mean something to me. Julian, do you have one specific one? Yes. A million years ago, back in the day, my parents decided to go to a place called Smith's Home Furnishings in Portland, Oregon, and buy an 8-track. You know, know, they used to have 8-tracks, used to play. And when you bought the 8-track unit, you were able to pick four 8-tracks of your choice. So I picked The Beatles' Let It Be. I picked Johnny Cash, Live at San Quentin. I picked Jimi Hendrix' Band of Gypsies, 
and Glenn Campbell's Try a Little Kindness. Mm. And on that album is a song called Home Again. And Ashley actually recorded the song on the I'll Be, I'll Be Me soundtrack. Mm. It's my favorite song by far. I love it. How about you, Mike? Okay, this is kind of interesting. I was on a retainer from 20th Century Fox Music in California. And 20th Century Fox, of course, is a great movie company, but they decided to get into record business and to get into publishing. And so I'm on a retainer, and they hired me to work a record called Rhinestone Cowboy by Larry Weiss. And I got the record played, but it wasn't, it was something lacking in that song. Maybe a year later, I woke up middle of the night, and there was a promo for Dinah Shore. And they played an excerpt, Glenn Campbell singing Rhinestone Cowboy. I said, oh my God. First thing in the morning, I called up Stan Schneider. I said, Stan, we got a number one record. He said, we don't have a record out. I said, Glenn's going to sing Rhinestone Cowboy on Dinah Shore. He said, oh yeah, that isn't out yet. I said, that's going to be a number one record. That's going to be his signature song. And so that's my favorite. It means a lot. He gave me a gold record for it, which I'd love to put in the museum. That hit home with me. But I got to work the original by Larry Weiss, and then got to work the hit with Glenn. And then we, we took it number one. That was, that was his really his first really big, big million, multi-million seller. But this was the really first one to hit the home run. I'll tell you another story on that. The cover to the album, Kenny Rogers did the photo session on that. Kenny Rogers was going through a period in his life where he was singing, but he wasn't making a lot of money. So he would take photos. If you look on there, somewhere it says on there, photo by Kenny Rogers. And, uh, and, we're, and so we had a party at Capitol celebrating Glenn's 10th anniversary 20 years into his career. And we're at the Capitol Tower. And we had a whole group of us together taking pictures. And this one guy was standing in the middle who I didn't recognize. I said, could you step back a second, sir? We're going to get some pictures with Glenn and everybody. And Glenn said, don't you know Kenny? I said, no, he said, this is Kenny Rogers. So I said, oh, Kenny, get this picture with us. So I got a picture with Kenny Rogers in the middle of it. But he's wearing his old funky leather jacket. He looked like a homeless person. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> what a story. All right, we're going to ask you guys individual questions now. So my question is for TK. You manage so many incredible artists. What is the key to being a great manager? Popping on the shoulders of talented people. That's it. If they don't have the goods, if they don't have the right voice and the right song at the right time, no matter what you do, it's not going to happen. It's all about that magic moment, right? It is. Yeah, a great singer can be a great singer and not have that song, and they'll never make it. Mm -hmm. A mediocre singer can have the right song and they'll make it. So with Glenn, it was a perfect combination. Right. Great voice, great songs. This question is for you, Julian. Take us into the studio on the day that you and Glenn recorded I'm Not Gonna Miss You. Because when I watch that documentary, I see you holding the lyrics up for him and you're standing right next to him during that session. It was a difficult day. He loved the song. And he was at the point, at least that day, as you know, with Alzheimer's, things can change. You know, 10 minutes, he's all of a sudden completely different. If you sang something to him or worked with him on something, he could sing it right back to you perfectly. But by the time you rolled the music and it got to the part where he was supposed to sing, he was getting a little frustrated because he would forget it. But we kept working at it, and, it, you know, it took a while to get that song because Glenn was always so fast, and that's why we really enjoyed working together, because he'd come in and, you know, he, he would work on a song, and he would get it in just a couple of takes. He'd be done, and it would be amazing. That day, he was a little further along, and I think uh, we got through it, and we had a fun day, and again, those kind of sessions 
will always stand out to me because it was very emotional. You know, it was, it's hard to watch somebody you care about, and I didn't know a lot about Alzheimer's then. Even though he was having trouble remembering what, what we were doing, he sang perfectly in tune. It was amazing. He was just was gifted, you know. Anybody that was, you know, half as talented with him would have never been able to get through it. He just had it. So that was that day. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mike, we talk a lot about the it factor with an artist. Glenn had that it factor. Yeah. You've been involved in music your entire career. How do you recognize when a new artist has that potential to have the it factor? This is an interesting one because I've been lucky through my whole career to be able to do that. 1991, I think it was, I get a call for a friend of mine named Bruce Wendell at Capitol Records. And Bruce was a Philly fanatic. He loved the Philadelphia Phillies. And Bruce called me. He said, I was just at a roast for Mike Schmidt. And Tug McGraw sent, gave me a tape of his son. And I don't know anything about country music, but would you take a listen to it? I said, yeah, send it to me. He said, well, the kid lives in Nashville. And he comes walking in my office, and he hands me a tape. says, hi, I'm Tim McGraw. I said, I'm on the phone. Go sit down. So he comes in, he had a great big hat on, and he hands me this cassette, and he says, can you listen to this? Yeah, I'll listen, and I'll call you. But I could see when he walked in the office, this kid had that it factor as far as his look and his mannerisms. And I put the cassette in it. To this day, I still got that cassette play. I put it in, I hit play. Halfway through the first song, I turned to him, I said, you're a beep, beep star. You got a curb contract as of right now. I signed him on the spot. Wow. Yeah, and I called my boss in California, Dick Whitehouse. I said, Dick, I just signed an artist. He said, you can't sign an artist. We had 18 artists. We don't need anybody. I said, no, this kid, Tim McGraw, he's got that it factor. I said, he's got it. He's going to be a big deal. So I sent the tape to California, and Dick calls me back. He said, I don't get it, Borchetta. I said, you don't have to. I said, I'll take it from here. And so the first three or four records, they didn't make it, but we put out Indian Outlaw. And the rest is history. That's right. So, but wow. uh, but he yeah. had the defector. And one other time that happened, Hal Ketchum walked into my office. He had already signed a commitment to, to our label with Dick Whitehouse, but no one at the label had met him yet. And Hal came in the office and sat down across from me. And I called Dick while he was sitting there. I said, Dick, I haven't heard him sing yet, but he's a star just walking in the office. I hope he can live up to his looks. <laughs> and we put out Small Town Saturday Night. And it was a record of the year. But over the years, I've been blessed to be able to do that. And when I worked with the Beach Boys early on, I worked with them on the first two or three records and, and again I knew they had I gave them the idea for Surfing USA wow. but Glenn was on a lot of those sessions <laughs> and Glenn was the, was the third Everly brother he was the fifth or sixth beach boy he was all of that I have to follow up on that. You just said, I gave them the idea for Surfing USA. Yeah. We need like, more information. Excuse me, I need more information on that. Okay. They put out Surfing on a record label called Candix Records first. That was their first record. Then they put out on Capitol One. I went to Capitol. They were here at the same time with Glenn and all of us. And we put out Surfing Safari back with 409. And that was a hit. Well, Gary Usher, the late Gary Usher, had wrote a song called Ten Little Indians and County Fair on the Other Side. But those days we had double-sided hits. We took that record out, and we just came off a monster-selling record with Surf and Safari. The follow-up record, we, I don't think we sold 5,000 nationally. That record's probably worth more as a collectible now. I mean, I took it out to San Bernardino. We got it on the air. They played it. They got no response. So I walked into the, the, my bosses. I said, this record isn't a hit. We've got to do something else. So I had written a song with a fellow named Kip Martin called Shaking All Over. I said, let's change this to Surfing All Over. So Brian comes in the office. I said, Brian, I got an idea for a song. 
So about six months later, he gives me a finished copy of Surfing USA, ready to go to radio, but he took the idea I gave him, right? Well, the record was so poorly mastered that it sounded like it was flat. It didn't have, any, it didn't have that punch to it. I said, Brian, where'd you cut this? He says, Capitol Studios. I said, you can't cut records at Capitol Studios. Go back to Chuck Britz at Western Recorders and recut this where you cut the other stuff. So without telling his producer, Nick Vinay, or Boyle Gilmore, the head of A&R, he went to Western Recorders and recorded Surfing USA there. So I get a call from the tower, and Boyle Gilmore calls me and he says, did you tell the Beach Boys to record at Western Recorders? I said, yeah. He said, you can't do that. I said, well, I did. <laughs> and the, the record now was already pressed, ready to go to radio. And they had to scrap the original session, and they put it out. And then it comes out and it says, written by Brian Wilson. I said, you can't say written by Brian Wilson. Chuck Berry is the real writer because it's Sweet Little 16. So the first one said, Sea of Tunes, Music, Brian Wilson. So you find one of those, it's a collectible. And the rest of them say, Chuck Berry, Arc Music. All the insider the, info. Yeah. All the insider information right here at the yeah. Glen Campbell Museum. Yeah. Ooh, crazy town. All right, TK, back to you. You became Glenn's manager in 2016 and have known the Campbell family for 35 years. Since his passing, you are in many ways the keeper of Glenn's legacy. What are your hopes for generations to come who will hear his music? I think you have to constantly look for ideas and, and ways to reintroduce his music to, to younger and younger people. And, you know, a hit record's always a hit record. So all you have to do is let younger generations hear those great songs like Rhinestone Cowboy and Wichita Lineman, Phoenix, Galveston, and it'll work. So you hope to do a movie, a biopic on his life, like what happened with Ray Charles and Johnny mm-hmm. Cash. So a lot of good things are in store. And the Glen Campbell Museum is doing an excellent job of that, if I do say so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Julian, you have said, if Glenn were half the musician and singer, he wouldn't have been able to do the goodbye tour. What do you think kept him going during that tour for 18 months and 151 shows? I think the love of playing music with his family. Kim was with him every step of the way. You know, Cal, Shannon, Ashley. I mean, it just—it was fun. I'm sure it was fun to go out there, you know, every night and have fun with your family and do what you love doing. I can't think of anything else better, and I'm sure that's what kept him going and why he loved it. Well, on our podcast, we ask every guest on the show what the key to success in country music is. So, Mike, I want to ask you, what is the key to success in country music? Working hard, okay? I see so many artists with talent that get about halfway there and they don't follow through. If they were, more artists would learn to listen to the executives that teach them these things, they would be better off. And I've worked with some people that they were superstars. And about a quarter way into it, they get off on a tangent. They start listening to everybody in the mm. world and they, they, they blow it. So in my day, I, I was working with Nelson Riddle. I was telling Nelson Riddle what to do. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and I had all these big people around me and I was... 20 years old, and they were following me around. These people were listening to me then. And then as I got later on in life, I was able to convince a lot of people to go a certain direction. And uh, we actually had a group a couple of years, actually 16 years ago, we found a group out of Alabama called Heartland. And my wife, Martha, actually found them and cut the story short. We signed them 
first record we put out was called I Loved Her First. Went to number one in Billboard. And this is when independent label, we had a small independent label called Lofton Creek Records, but we knew they had that it factor. But what happened after the first record, they came to my office and complained that I didn't have a big enough staff. And meanwhile, we debuted the album at number three in Billboard. The single went number one. And I said, you want out of the contract? So we let them out of the contract. They went on their way. And the new people they got with gave them all the wrong direction. And they went to driving buses and driving trucks. And, <laughs> but this group could have been the biggest group in country music ever. If you listen to their album, the Heartland album, and that song, I Loved Her First, you hear it and it brings tears to your eyes. It's a classic. And we've sold a million and a half downloads and 500,000 albums off that one song. Wow. But they had that it factor. But again, the station that sent them to me in Lawrenceburg, Tennessee, they asked them to come back and do an autograph session at the station after the record went number one. They wouldn't even go. They said, we can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. That station sent them to us. If it wasn't for that station, they wouldn't have a number one record. But so many people turned the other way. You better be nice to people going up because they'll see the same ones coming down. Amen. Music is a relationship business just yeah. like every other yeah. business, and I right? T.K. Kimball right now is probably one of the most respected managers in history of our business. Not just because I'm sitting here. He is. He's so well respected. And uh, if I was a singer, I'd want T.K. to manage me. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know you were going to get all that love up here tonight, did you, T.K.? We're going to ask the same, same final question for you, T.K., Fill in the blank. Success in country music, the key is what? The key is a song. Having the right song and the right person singing it. How about you, Julian? The key to success in country music is what? I have to echo what TK said. It's all about the song. I think that's what Glenn did best is he, he picked songs he wanted to sing. and It felt it was closest to his heart and what he could communicate to people. And I think it still stands today. Song is everything. Well, I want to say thank you so much, TK, Julian, and Mike, for being our guests on Country Music Success Stories at the Glen Campbell Museum. Thank you for sharing your stories with us tonight. Thank you. And that's part one of our live podcast recorded at the Glen Campbell Museum as part of their week-long tribute to the life and music of Glen Campbell. Part two features an up-close and personal conversation with Kim Campbell. Glenn's wife of 34 years and the mother of his children, Cal, Shannon, and Ashley. We'll talk to Kim about the life she had with Glenn, raising their children outside of the spotlight while still nurturing their musical gifts, and what his journey with Alzheimer's disease was like for the entire family. We hope you'll spread the word about country music success stories. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow us on social at Country Music Success Stories. Our TikTok handle is Candy and JC. The series is now available on the Country Line app, so please download it for all things country music. We've got more legends to meet and stories to tell. This is Candy O'Terry. And I'm JC Don Valeris. Thank you for listening to Country Music Success Stories, where the stars welcome us into their homes and tell us how they made it in Nashville.